You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday evening sermon series. Start there tonight. <laughs> I won't tell you where we're going to wind up. Starts with an R. <laughs> yeah. Um, this past weekend, I had the privilege and the ability to go to a theological conference in Orlando, like an international conference. And uh, the first night, Jessica and, and Anna stayed stayed here, and Jessica came up uh, the next day just to keep from having to shift Anna around too much. And um, talked to them on the phone Thursday night, eating. They were eating supper and talked to Aunt Jessica. I got to talk to Anna, and that's always great. When we're away from our loved ones and our family and our friends, it's it's always great to talk to them, FaceTime, Skype, whatever method you use. But it's not the same as being with them, is it? I mean, it's just common sense. Seeing uh, your loved one on a screen and talking to them, as great as that is, and as wonderful as that, that technology is, it's not the same as being in their presence. And the same is true talking to Jessica, talking to Anna, and as wonderful as that is, and I wouldn't not call them and not talk to them while I'm away, I'd also much rather them be there with me and to see Jessica and to be with Anna. And you feel the same way about your family and friends, I'm sure. Well, tonight I want to talk to us about being in the presence of God, what the presence of God means. In Isaiah chapter 7, we remember this promise that Isaiah says that when this um, suffering servant Messiah figure comes, one of the things that we will call him is Emmanuel, which Matthew tells us is translated God with us. And we often associate this with Christmas time, that Jesus comes and he is God with us in human flesh and he's come to dwell with us and live with us. And that's true and it's good. But the picture of Emmanuel, God with us, is far greater than that. And I hope tonight as we do a little short kind of biblical survey of what it means to be in the presence of God, what God's presence means, uh, that, that that picture will kind of open up for us. God's presence is its hard to define because... Here's a $10 word that we'll explain, but it's a good word. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go to be outside of the presence of God. We call it omnipresent. So we say God is everywhere. And that's true. God is everywhere. There's nowhere that God is not. But it's also a totally different thing to say God is everywhere, but God is here. And so when we look in the Bible and we talk about the presence of God, the biblical authors, the Holy Spirit ultimately knows that God is everywhere and it's either here in this location or there and not in the other place. 
but they also say things like, our God is with us. The presence of God, that God is here. So what do we mean by that? Let's look first uh, to Genesis chapter one, and I think we see this played out in the creation of man. Look at verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, from the very beginning, God said, verse 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. So we see that from the beginning, man is a special creation because man alone is made in the image of God. And part of the blessing and the dominion that man has over creation is part of what that image means. That just as God created and God is Lord over all, he has made man little lords over the things he has made. You can go through that chapter and see every, 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 everything. That man then is blessed with dominion over these things. Lordship, care over what God has made. And that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Man alone is made in his image and God says it is very good. Look at Genesis 2 verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. So here a little more detailed account about how God made man. And notice, uh, notice the intimacy of it. That God stoops down and forms man from the dust of the ground and then breathes into him the breath of life. You see how that's intimate close, personal, even in the way he made us, he is present, he's with us, he's doing it, he's forming us, he's breathing into us the breath of life. Genesis chapter three. You know what happens? The deceiver comes, he deceives Eve, he deceives Adam, and when they fall, verse seven, the eyes of both are open and they know that they knew they were, they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice the entrance of shame, an awareness of sin, an awareness of wrong, an awareness that something is wrong between us and God. And they try to hide this by sewing fig leaves together. In the most primitive way imaginable, let's hide ourselves from God. And there's a sever in the relationship. Verse eight, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? So they hear God coming in their shame. The 
shame of what they had done, the shame of their nakedness that is kind of new to them, the shame of this severed relationship, what seems to have been a regular occurrence that God must have come down often and walked in the midst of the garden with his people, with, with man and woman. The creation made in his image, his image bears. He must have come down often and walked because they knew the Lord was coming and it says they hid themselves. After making some terrible covering for their nakedness out of leaves, now they hear God coming and they run and they hide. This intimate contact, this personal, intimate fellowship and communion with God is severed, not lost, but severed. But I want you to notice something else. In their hiding, in their trying to escape, in the severing of this relationship, it is God who comes after them. It is God who initiates the contact and the relationship. Now, who is supposed to be offended in this passage? God. Who's the creator? God. Whose law has been broken? God. Who's the rebels? Adam and Eve are the rebels. God has every right to wad it up. So I, I told the kids a few years ago, we did a series called Messed Up and why the world is so messed up and how God from the beginning could have wadded it up and just thrown it all away. But he comes after us and he says, where are you? God shows a desire from the beginning to restore the fellowship, to restore the relationship, and to restore these people to being in his presence. Now look at Exodus chapter 3. If you get tired of turning, it'll, you, know, you, can, you can abstain and just listen, but try to turn. <laughs> we'll be in Exodus for a minute, so it'll, it's helpful. Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. We know the story up until this point that uh, it, uh, Israelites are in Egypt and they're in slavery and they're crying out to God for deliverance. And we had Moses and he was in the bulrushes and he was found and now he's run off. And this is when God appears to him in the burning bush and calls him to go and to set the people free. But we know that Moses argues with God. I'm not ready. I can't do it. I don't speak well. Whatever the excuses are, God says in Exodus 3.12, but I will be with you. And this shall be a sign that I sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So you see, God is present with Moses. He promises to be present with Moses. I will be with you in a way of help. I know that you don't have the strength and ability to do this on your own, Moses, so I will be with you. I will be present with you to help you, to aid you, to guide you. And I will give you power. I'll give you these signs and this authority that you'll know that I'm with you. And this continues throughout Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 13. Once all the plagues have come and Pharaoh has finally allowed uh, the Hebrews to go, they find themselves in the wilderness. And this is how God chooses to lead them. Exodus 13 verse 21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God is present with his people in a way of leadership, guiding them both day and night. By day with the pillar that's a cloud and by night with this pillar that's fire. This is God's leading presence, his guiding presence. 
He's with his people and he does not depart from them. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse uh, 16. Exodus 19, 16. Come through the Red Sea, they're at the foot of Sinai, and this is when the Lord promises to come down on Sinai. Exodus 19, 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it with fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, you can all, the Lord's being very emphatic here. I know I've said that before, but make sure you go tell them again. Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up for the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So here we see God's presence visibly descending on the mountain. The glory of God in the cloud and the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet blast and the trembling and the earthquakes. And, but it comes with a warning. Yes, I have descended in your midst, but don't you dare come close to the mountain or you will die. And yes, Lord, I've already told them that. Tell them again. Make sure they understand that even though my presence is in the midst of them, they cannot just come to me any way they want. I want to be with my people. But you almost hear it as if, and I want to be careful because God doesn't do anything that is not of his will. But it almost makes it sound as if, God will not be able to stop the lashing out of his holiness if the people should come too close. And that's really the case. He says, don't let them come lest my anger lash out against them as if I will not have any choice but to strike them down because of my holiness. So keep them away. Go ahead and turn to Exodus 40, but I will just kind of briefly narrate almost 10 chapters of Exodus, which is all about one thing, the tabernacle. Exodus 25 through 31, and then picking up in 35 through 40, 10 chapters out of 40, 25% if you look at chapters as the percentage of the book of Exodus is dedicated to God specifying how the tabernacle is to be built what it's to be made of, what the dimensions are, every exact detail down to the finest detail is enumerated by God and leaves nothing to the opinion or the creativity of the people. God says exactly what to make it with, how to make it, who's gonna make it, how long it's gonna be, what it's gonna be made of, everything. For 10 chapters, God does this. And we, we, we might be tempted to think that's really picky of God and how can he be so particular? I thought he was loving and merciful and kind and gracious and he wanted us to be with him. Do you understand that from the beginning God could have wiped out the whole thing? But in giving us 10 chapters 
of instruction and detail, he is doing a gracious thing in telling us how to come to him. And even, even allowing a way for us to come to him. But he says, you have to do it on my terms. And here's 10 chapters of how to do it on my terms. He didn't have to do anything. But he says, this will be a tent of meeting. This will be a tabernacle. The word tabernacle is one of those religious words we throw around and we uh, name churches after it. And we don't really know what it means. It means a tent, a dwelling place. I mean, literally a tent, a booth. You think about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. All it is is a fancy word for a tent. So in the Feast of Tabernacles, faithful Jews then and faithful Jews now live in a tent for a week to commemorate how they lived in the wilderness. But the same word applies to this place where God met them. In a tent, a bigger tent, with a lot more instructions and detail. But he meets with his people. He lives in the midst of his people. And a very peculiar thing about the tabernacle, that Israel is to be encamped around the tabernacle. That all the tribes and their tents and their tribes are to be around, surrounding the place where the tabernacle was. So that God paints a powerful, unmistakable picture that his presence is literally in the middle of his people. I am in the midst of you. And they see the pillar over the tabernacle. They see the pillar of the cloud by day and the fire by night. And it rests and then it leads now, now look at Exodus 40. I haven't even turned there myself. Uh, Exodus chapter 40, starting in verse 34. You'll notice this is the end of the book of Exodus too. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. After, this is after the tabernacle is constructed and set up, and this is kind of its inauguration. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Notice words, tabernacled, glory. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So this is God's presence of worship. He says, come to me, worship me on my terms, in my place, and the way I've told you. But it's also a presence of leadership. That this pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire rests on the tabernacle and the people do not move as long as it rests on the tabernacle. But when it leaves, they follow. Why? Because that's the signal that the presence of God is leading them. And you don't want to stay back here when the presence of God is going there. And is God not everywhere? Yes, but he's leading us that way and his presence is going that way. And we have to follow him. The presence of leadership, the presence of worship. If we were to go back to Exodus 19 in your minds and think about what we saw there on the mountain, we saw a restriction. The glory comes down on the mountain, but the people are not allowed to come. Keep the people away. Why? Because of God's holiness and because of our sin. And then in Exodus chapter 20, through the construction of the tabernacle, when we have the law given, the Ten Commandments, and then the explanation of the Ten Commandments, God is saying, this is why you can't come to me, because this is my holy 
righteous, perfect law that reveals who I am. But it also reveals how sinful you are. And you're going to break this law. You're going to disobey this law. And that's why you have a need for the tabernacle, for sacrifices, for a priesthood, for atonement, for restoration. So that even though the people have violated God's law and God's commandments, there's still a way for them to come to him through the priesthood, through the mediatorial office of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and the blood and the redemption and the atonement. There's forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration so that people can come to God. So he doesn't just appear on the mountain and say, don't come to me ever. He says, for right now, keep them away. Here's the law. Here's how sinful you are. Here's how holy I am. And now let me provide a way for you to come. Israel herself is called the assembly. That means a gathering of people. That's it. All the people, the saints, the assembly, the congregation, whatever you want to call them, you get the picture that there is a gathering. And if there is a gathering, then somebody is calling the gathering. And that someone is God. He calls the people, come to me. Make sure you do it this way, but you can come to me. That's what the covenants, that's what the law, that's what the ordinances, that's what they're all about in the old covenant. That God is inviting his people to come to him, to restore fellowship, to restore communion. Come back to me, gather to me, be with me. Let's turn now to Psalm 42, which I read at the beginning of our service tonight. I know you're all glad I didn't say, let's go to Leviticus and Deuteronomy numbers and all the rest of them. Psalm 42. If we took time to look at this subject in all of scripture, we'd be here for far too long. Uh, so we're doing a, just kind of a brief survey of where this presence of God thing shows up in Scripture. Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for the flowing streams, so my soul for you, O God. My soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So we see the psalmist here longing for the presence of God. Is he not everywhere? The psalmist would say yes. Is he not omnipresent? Obviously. But in some special relational, communal way, this psalmist wants to be in the presence of God and to be filled up with God and satisfied in God. And that's what this psalm is about. Look at Psalm 51, a psalm of David. A confessional psalm after he was found with Bathsheba and admitted his guilt. Look at verses 11 and 12. You could argue that this is the climax of David's prayer. This is what he fears most. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
a confessional psalm. And David's pouring out his sins before the Lord and asking for forgiveness. And his chief fear is that God's presence would leave him and the Holy Spirit would be taken from him. I have time to talk about how the Holy Spirit operates in the Old Testament. and he's, he's anointing kings for a specific reason, but it's not the same as the filling in the New Testament. So no, you can't lose the Holy Spirit. You can't lose your salvation. That's not what David is saying. He's saying, don't take away from me the joy of your presence and your calling and your anointing like you did Saul who fell into sin and disobeyed you and rebelled against you and you took away your blessing and your calling from him. Don't do that to me. And so these Psalms, and there's, you can read all the Psalms and see this theme of the presence of God. But what is David and the Psalmist talking about? A longing for the presence of God of spiritual satisfaction and wholeness. Turn to the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah 41. We'll start in verse 8 and just read through verse 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. And be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Interestingly enough, Joy didn't know I was speaking tonight. And she certainly didn't know my, my passage or my theme. But you can see that that wonderful hymn, How Firm a Foundation, is based on many biblical texts, this being one of them. I, can, I, can, I can't almost not even read this passage without saying it with the, the lyrics and the tune of the song. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and I will still give you aid. It's the whole thing. I'll strengthen you, help you, and help, help, cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. This is a leadership and a presence of God's sufficiency for his people. Look at chapter 43 of Isaiah, just the first two verses. Same thing here, how firm a foundation. But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. Listen, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. In both of those, we see what God says, I will be with you. I am with you. In trials, in turmoil, in chaos, for Israel, even in times of discipline, in times of judgment for their sin, God says, I am with you. I have not abandoned you. Presence of God's sufficiency, his comfort even in the midst of trials, even when those trials come from him. Now let's turn the covenant and go to John chapter 1. John 1 verses 1 through 5. Everything that we've just read from Genesis, Exodus, 
and the Psalms and Isaiah are just little snapshots of things that are all over the Old Testament. That's not an exhaustive list of passages about God's presence and God's power and God's leadership and all that good stuff. But what we read there, as great as they are, as powerful as they are, they are only shadows. They're veiled depictions of the far greater reality that comes with Jesus. We read the Old Testament with joy because we look back and understand that all of those things have found their fulfillment and their completion in Jesus. And we're gonna see that in John chapter one, verses one through five. Very familiar words. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And now if you'll skip down to verse 14, not because the others aren't important, but I think this is the little bookend on that section. And the word became flesh. The word who was God, the word who was with God became flesh and he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Skenao is the Greek verb that means to dwell. I dwell with. But it literally means I set up my tent with. You might have heard someone give the verb form to the word tabernacle and say it correctly that the word becomes flesh and tabernacled with us. Literally, you could say it this way, this is a lot more poetic. The word became flesh and spread his tabernacle with us. The word who was God, the word who was with God is now the God who descends to us and tabernacles with us. And if I have to draw the lines back to Exodus for you, I will, but they're obvious, aren't they? That God descends to his people sets up a place where they can come to him, an access point that's marked by sacrifice and blood and atonement. And we see that the Lord Jesus in his incarnation comes to us and tabernacles with us. Not only that, and if you didn't get the picture yet, it says we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I love what John goes on to say in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. You don't think John meant to draw these parallels? For the law was given through Moses and that was great and it was holy and it was good. But grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. When we see Jesus, when we hear Jesus, when they walked with Jesus, when they saw Jesus, when they heard Jesus, they were in the presence of God. They were beholding the very glory of God, no longer veiled by law and ordinances and rituals, 
but fulfilled in this person that was standing and walking. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Look just one chapter later in John chapter 2. After Jesus cleanses the temple, removes all the thieves and the robbers and those that were selling and ripping people off, we see Jesus have an encounter with the Pharisees. These Pharisees and religious leaders who were probably receiving a little bit of kickback from what was going on in the temple didn't like this guy coming in and upsetting their little business. And they come to Jesus and they say, what authority have you to do this? Verse 18. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? But Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was talking about the temple of his body. If you didn't get what Jesus was saying, he was veiling it for the religious leaders You think I'm talking about this building? As if this building is where God is contained? I am the temple. Paul says this in the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 19, chapter 2, verse 9. In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. He is the walking fulfillment of of the tabernacle. He's the walking fulfillment of the temple because he is the very presence of God's glory with us. When we see Jesus, we see God. When we see Jesus, we see the glory of God and he reveals that to us. Look at John 14. John 14, starting in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. Pastor John, I think he said the word this morning. Someone said the word recently. Parakletos, one who comes alongside of. One who is there beside you in your presence. I'll give you another helper to be, to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells in you and will be, or he dwells with you and will be in you. Look at verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. Jesus, I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Look at John 15, starting in verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you by my Father. No, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I have not selected the right scripture. I'm sorry, uh, verse 16, chapter 16, verse 7. Shoo. Hate it when I mix my numbers up. John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Now we're talking about some odd ideas here, aren't we? Jesus, I'm going away, I won't be with you, but I'm sending the helper to be with you. And he says, it's better for me to go away so that that helper can come. When he comes, he will convict the world of concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. I heard this at the conference, I've heard this many times before, so I don't know who to attribute it to. 
but this is what this verse is saying. The Holy Spirit inside of you is better than Jesus beside you. That's what Jesus is saying, and it's an odd thought, isn't it? Who wouldn't give their right arm to have Jesus physically in this place right now? But Jesus says you have something better. It is to your advantage that I go away so that the Holy Spirit can come and dwell inside of you. Because Jesus in his physical form amongst us right now could only go out and eat with one of us tonight. He could only come back to one of our houses. Jesus says, I go away. The helper who is with you will come. And he will be in you, plural, all of you. Go out to eat with the Holy Spirit tonight. All of you take the Holy Spirit home with you tonight. Because we carry him inside of us by faith in Christ. Acts 2, you don't have to turn there, but you know what happens. Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, they're waiting on the promise of the Father They're waiting on what Jesus was talking about, the the Holy Spirit to come in power and to fill them and to be inside of their bodies. And they hear the rushing wind and they see the flames of fire and suddenly the Holy Spirit fills them. Why does he fill them? Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. You'll receive power. This is God's presence of power and boldness and zeal and courage. Ultimately, it's his presence of witnessing, making us able to carry his name to the ends of the earth. Today, we talked about John 12, in which Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. You see that that language of drawing, gathering? In John 6 and John 10, we see Jesus identified as the shepherd who comes to gather his sheep to himself. In Ephesians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but we see that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We followed after the course of the world. We followed Satan. We followed our own sinful desires. But God raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places. Through the person and work of Jesus Christ, who was God with us, who was the tabernacle of God, the glory of God with us, we are reconciled to God. And Paul uses all these wonderful prepositions in Ephesians 1 and 2, in him, with him, to him, by him, to show that all of this happens through the presence of the Holy Spirit and the working of Jesus Christ himself. The old covenant came through law, sacrifice, rituals, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, and all those things were good and righteous and holy. But the fulfillment of all of those things come to us, comes to us when we see the person of Jesus Christ, his cross, his burial, his resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's what the whole Old Testament was about. It all points to the presence of God in Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit that comes through faith in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 16 tells us that Jesus reconciled us to God. You know what that means? He brought us together. Where we were enemies, where there was separation because of sin, Jesus appears as the mediator between God and man and reconciles the two parties. 1 Peter 3.18 says that in his body, he bore our sins in his body on the tree in order to, for the purpose of bringing us to God. 
through his cross, Jesus reconciles us to God. That which was destroyed by Eden and the fall and Adam and Eve and sin is reconciled in the person of Jesus as he bridges the gap. Please understand this. Jesus does not just build the bridge and stand on the other side and say, please come. Look look at all I've prepared for you. Now just, come on. John 6, John 10, Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2. Jesus goes over the bridge, grabs your dead body, and brings you back across. That he might bring us to God, Peter says. I don't want to leave this section, but I will. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Living for Jesus is great. Being with him in glory is far greater. That's what Paul says in Philippians 1, 18, starting in the later part of the verse. You know this. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn for our deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, I can hardly make the choice. I love living here on earth, serving the Lord with my body and my ministry, this physical earthly ministry. I love being with you all, his churches, his people. Paul's talking to people he loves. I love this, but it's almost hard to choose between staying here and serving and loving you and going to be with Jesus. And I love how he pictures it. There's the word again, isn't it? To be with Christ. I would love to be here with you, but I want to go be in his presence. Lastly, sigh of relief, Revelation 21. You're going to have to hold me down on tonight. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. This is what it all means. This is where it's all coming down to. This is the fulfillment of all things. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place. If you have an ESV or any study Bible, I'm sure there's a footnote there that will point you to the bottom and say the word tabernacle. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have all passed away. The fulfillment of everything, 
the consummation of all things is nothing less than what God created us for in the first place. To be in his presence. To be with us even as we're with him. So that in these closing words, of literally some of the closing words of all of scripture, God says, this is how this whole thing ends. I will spread my tabernacle in the midst of you. And I will be with you and you will be with me. The presence of God. If I can make some closing words of application very quickly. Number one, I tried to make these imperative, you know, to help you kind of see like you do this, but they might be a little long. (laughs) Find God's presence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Find God's presence in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're here tonight and you don't know if you're a believer, you don't know what it means to have come to a knowledge of your sin, your need of a savior, and, and to turn your life over to Jesus and follow him by faith. If that's you tonight, then the invitation is for you. Repent. It's a big fancy theological word that just means you're going this way, turn around and go that way, turn away from your sin, turn to God. And come to God through Christ and what he has done for you on the cross and with his resurrection. And you know what God says in John chapter 1, he will do for you when you call the name of Jesus and you're saved. He says he will bring you into his family and he makes you sons and daughters of God in his household, in his family, in his presence. So first of all, that's where we got to start. If you're not a believer, you don't have any presence of God. And you need to get into Christ so that Christ then therefore bring you to God. Number two, enjoy God's presence by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is for believers, obviously. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. You've been filled with the Spirit, baptized into the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. The Bible tells us the Holy Spirit lives in us. Peter says that we're like living stones in a new temple a dwelling place for God by his spirit. This is not, listen, this is not some mystical, ethereal, intangible thing to enjoy the presence of God by the spirit. I can tell you exactly what to do to try to find enjoyment in the presence of God by his spirit. It's not about lifting your hands or closing your eyes or singing with a lot of emotion or crying a lot or being, this is a big one, it's not even about being by yourself a lot. Number one, read the Bible. Study the word of God. Paul says that all scripture is God breathed. Same word for the Holy Spirit that breathes out through the words of scripture. Number two, this is little subheadings for my students over here, subheadings under the main heading. Number two, pray. Communicate with God. These are simple things, aren't they? But we don't do them. I don't do them. Pray, communicate with God. Practice being in his presence by talking to him. Number three, be with the people of God. That's it. Read your Bible. Pray. Be with the people of God. When we're with the people of God, 
and we pray and we sing. We hear preaching, we hear teaching. God is, God is gathering his assembly together. He's meeting with us and he's speaking to us. When we celebrate the ordinances, what are we showing? Except that in baptism, we show that we have become sons of God. And just like he says about Jesus, he says to us, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter with whom I'm well pleased. And in the Lord's Supper, I mean, what, what, what clearer picture of what the gospel is about is there than the Lord's Supper in which God stands here, whether it's Pastor John or our chairman or vice chairman of deacons, whoever it is, it's Christ himself, God standing there saying, come and eat with me. Pull up a table in my presence. Number three and last, beware of living without God's presence. In John chapter six, Jesus has done many signs. He's done many miracles. But he says some offensive things. And the people say, we can't do this anymore. Jesus looks at Peter and says, are you all going to leave me too? Peter says, where, where else are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Why are you here tonight? Why are you here ever? Tradition. My grandparents went to church. My parents went to church. I'm going to go to church. It's the culturally, morally upright thing to do. Is it to socialize? To feel a sense of belonging in a very physical, unspiritual way, just to be with people you like and go do things and have activities? A fear of hell? Somebody told you you'll go to hell if you're not saved, so you got saved, so you don't go to hell. Peace, joy, happiness, trying to find these good things in life. Or do you want Jesus? Through his word, through his people, through his ordinances. If you'll indulge me, I have a four-minute audio clip of a wonderful preacher named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I guarantee that his accent will make you want to listen to him much longer than four minutes, so if you're feeling a little exasperated that I'm saying four minutes, just wait till you hear him. You'll be like, ah, that's nice. Let's play that now, and because he can say it far better than I can, so I'm going to let him say it, and then I'll come close this with a word of prayer. Men and women, when they're truly awakened, begin to realize that there is nothing which is so serious as to be without the presence of God. Do you get its full force? 
God was sending them to the promised land. God was saying, go up. I promised you the land of Canaan. I'm going to give it to you. You shall go to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'll send my angel before you to destroy these enemies, these Amorites, these Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go along. Go up to your promised land. I've brought you out of the captivity of Egypt. I'm sending you on. Go ahead. Lead them, Moses. I'll send an angel with you. And the people said, no. If you're not coming with us, we don't want to go. Now that's the essence of spiritual understanding. And that's the thing, my dear friends, that you and I have got to come to. You see, here were the people who suddenly awakened, uh, came to this tremendous, profound realization that to be given every, given every other blessing is of no value if God doesn't do it. What's the value of Canaan? What's the value of milk and honey? What's the value of having possessions? If you are not with us, they saw that the realization of the presence of God, having his fellowship and company, was infinitely more important than everything else. Need I apply this to the church today? You can have successes over your enemies, you know. Without this great realization of God in the midst. Oh, yes. There are angels who can do that for us. Destroy certain of our enemies. Take us to the land. We're in Canaan. We've got the milk and honey. Yes, everything seems to be all right. There's an appalling verse in Psalm 106 where we are told to the children of Israel, God granted them their requests but sent leanness into their soul. You can have an outward prosperity and affluence. The church may, be, may seem to be doing remarkably well. Good finances, good figures, successes, conversions, enemies defeated, everything going well. And the newspapers report it. The Christian newspapers report it. It all seems to be marvelous. But the appalling question I ask is this. Is God in the midst? Is he really amongst us? Are we aware as we should be of his glorious presence. That's the thing that got these people. And what they said in effect was, Canaan's no use to us. Milk and honey are no value. We're not interested in these enemies. We want you. Oh, says the psalmist, it is for thee I cry out as the heart panteth after the water brooks. So panteth my soul after thee, O God. He's not after blessings. He's after God, the living God. Yes, says Paul. Oh, I've been a successful evangelist. I've done so much. But oh, I'm not satisfied that I might know him. And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings. No, no, they said. We can't go on without you. The presence of God is essential. They came to that realization. as I say, their realization was that no outward prosperity and no type of success can compensate for the absence of God. What shall it profit a man though he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Christian people, I'm not asking you this morning whether you're living a good life. I'm not asking you whether you're happy. I'm not asking you whether you read your Bible and whether you pray. I'm not asking whether you're active in church work or in some other form of Christian activity. What I'm asking you is this. 
Do you know God? Is He with you? Is He in your life? Is He in the camp? Or are you traveling on with God as it were somewhere in the distance, given strength and power by His angel and by His leader and so on? But the question is, what of you in your personal relationship and your personal dealings? Joy and Sherry, could you come? We're going to sing a song, closing hymn. It's appropriate. Um, as they come, and we're going to sing together. This isn't an invitation per se, but my selected topic leading to tonight was not this. And I feel like the Lord in my own heart, my own life spoke this to me. And I don't know about you tonight in this building. I'm tired of life as usual. I'm tired of family life as usual. Without prayer, without leading my own family in the study of the Bible. I'm tired of doing everything I'm supposed to do but knowing that God is not in the midst. And I know that many of you are too. I'm tired of church as usual. Trucking in here, singing our songs and saying our prayers and listening and then leaving unchanged, powerless, and going into a world that is lost and dying with nothing to offer them except a pretty building and great activities for all ages and no power. So as we sing, I'm going to sing with you. But if you would like, just consider this song we're going to sing our dismissal tonight. If you feel so led and you don't want to stay for the singing, I don't, I don't blame you. you. You can slip out. But I invite you to sing. I invite you that if you need to, to pray where you are. If that just means sitting in your pew, maybe kneeling at your pew. If you would like to make use of these steps, you may as a response to God tonight, but let's leave here. Let's leave here changed by the word, by the presence of God. So let's stand and sing and let's respond. And if you need to, you pray, you respond the way that the Lord leads you to.
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.